forming a meeting in Greenville, South Carolina. I returned with friends to Asheville where I was staying and upon our arrival they suggested that they wait until I was in the house for it was midwinter and I did not have a top coat. I assured them that it would be all right, that my friend would come quickly to the door and I would soon be in a very warm, comfortable home. So I made my way confidently and knocked at the door, but there was no answer. I kept on knocking, but still there was no answer. I began to feel the biting cold on my ears. I made my way around the house and a rather large one and tried all the windows, but all were locked. I looked inside and it was very cozy, very warm, but I was outside and getting colder by the minute. I kept circling and tried again, and after about 10 minutes, I realized I would have to contact my sister, who was obviously not at home. I didn't want to knock at the door of a neighbor because it was late at night, so I decided to make my way to a shopping center about a quarter of a mile away. I knew how to walk on a highway to arrive at my destination and would walk facing the traffic. I remember quite clearly a car coming around the curb and blinding me with its light, causing me to slip into a ditch which had about a foot of icy water in it. I crawled out, determined to keep rejoicing, and made my way to the shopping center. I telephoned where I thought my friend would be, and she came to the phone. I explained my predicament to her, probably in a rather complaining voice, and then she said, words I will never forget. Mr. Carroll, I did give you a key. So I rather hesitatingly put my hand in my pocket and there was the key. I had that key all the time and had failed to use it. And that key would open up to me all the comforts and all the conveniences of that beautiful home. I was outside, cold, shivering, unable to get in and enjoy that which was awaiting me. And so very often this is our experience in the spiritual realm. We are cold spiritually and miserable spiritually and disturbed and yet all the time we have the answer to our need but fail to use it even as I failed to use the key that night to gain entrance to that home and to enjoy all that it was needful. And what is the answer to our need? It is the key of faith in the spiritual realm. All that our Heavenly Father provides for us with superabundance in Christ is all waiting to be experienced, to be enjoyed, but how? By the key of faith. We read about the victorious life. We hear preachers expanding it. We know it doctrinally. But do we experience it? Knowledge is not enough. It can only be made real in us by the key of faith, which unlocks for us all the treasures that are ours in Christ. We can say with the songwriter, Thou art Christ, that all I want, more than all in thee I find. But it never will be mine until I exercise faith. For faith makes real in me all that is true for me in Christ. 
Let's look together at the 23rd Psalm. And let us remember that it is not only the Psalm of faith, but it is also the Psalm of the present tense. And I want you to observe with me as we <clears throat> expound this Psalm, three words. The act of faith, the attitude of faith, and the attainment of faith. The act of faith, the attitude of faith, and the attainment of faith. One of the truly great preachers in England during the latter part of the last century was a man named Webb Pepler. Not well known in this nation, but well known in England and throughout Europe. He never prepared a message. He believed the Lord had led him in a peculiar way to a life of faith. He would simply stand at the platform, open the Bible to the passage he was to expound, and then trusting the Lord literally for every word. And he was one of the most popular and one of the most powerful of all the preachers on the great Keswick platform for almost 40 years. He was not always such a preacher, not always such a man of great faith, but he learned a lesson, a very painful lesson, that launched him into a life of triumphant, present tense faith in the abiding shepherd. He was called to speak at a conference. He was loved to leave his home. He loved his wife very dearly, and he was very, very attached to his only son, a small boy. But he went to the conference, and whilst he was there, he received shattering news. He came out of the meeting place, and there awaiting him was a telegram. And in, in very severe terms almost, he was told that by that telegram that his little boy had died in tragic circumstances. He was shocked. He didn't know which way to turn. He went for a long walk. Then he gave himself to prayer. But he was heartbroken and overcome with sorrow. Nothing could comfort him. He was distracted distracted, and he was destroyed. And then he went into the bedroom of the house where he was staying and noticed that there in the front of him on the wall were the words, My grace is sufficient for thee. He looked at those words a long time. And then he added words, and I believe he must have been sorry for that utterance all the rest of his days. For he cried, My God, it is not sufficient. It is not sufficient for me. Thy grace is not sufficient. And when he had quietened down, he was still thinking of returning home, the funeral, and the committing of the little body to the grave and all that would follow, the sadness, the empty place in the home, the empty bed, and he just couldn't take it. Then he saw that my grace is sufficient, was present tense grace. He looked at the verse again for a long time. And then he said, Lord, 
Thy grace is sufficient for me at this moment. And it will be sufficient for me the following moment and the following moment as I trust you and believe your word to be true. And he did. And from that moment on, he was known as the preacher of the present tense faith. But what made me ask is faith. I was preparing a series of messages on faith on one occasion for ministries in Japan. And I'd been through a number of the volumes in my library, but none of them gave me a satisfactory definition of faith. But finally, I came to a volume which I should have consulted at first. A volume on faith by the great Henley Moe. And he gives us this definition. Faith is personal trust in a person. Faith is personal trust in a person. For instance, if you are traveling by plane, you will go to the airport, step aboard the plane, and you will calmly be seated. What are you doing? You are expressing faith in the pilot to take you to your destination, you are expressing faith in a person, personal trust in a person. Now, we are all familiar with the first verse of this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And if I ask you what discovery David made before he made the Lord his shepherd, you might say, well, David, being a shepherd, realized that God wanted to be his shepherd. But I do not believe this to be his first great discovery. Surely the first great discovery David made was that he was a sheep, because only sheep need a shepherd. As he lived with those sheep and as he was shepherding them, he came to a conclusion and said, I am just like one of these sheep, I need somebody to guide me. I need a shepherd. I need one who will provide for me and protect me. This was his first great discovery. This discovery of his need. That the sheep was helpless and in some respects hopeless. My dear friends, I want to remind you right at the beginning of this message that only the truly helpless man lives by faith. Only the, true, the man who is truly conscious of his total helplessness lives by faith. And if you doubt your need to be conscious of your helplessness, all you have to do is turn to John 15 where the Lord says, Without me ye can do nothing. Now if that isn't helplessness, I don't know what helplessness is. Without me, he says, you can do nothing. In other words, you are totally helpless without me. So what we must realize, if we're going to have an experience of living by faith, if we're going to have an experience of the conscious presence of the ever-present, present tense shepherd, we're going to first realize our utter, total, unceasing, consistent need of him. Helplessness is the first step on the ladder to victorious living. The second great discovery David made was that the Lord wanted to be his shepherd, and so he took this great step of faith. The Lord is my 
shepherd, I shall not want. And I want to emphasize the statement, I shall not want. He has committed himself to the Lord to be his shepherd by this definite act of faith. What is he making the Lord responsible for? In making this act of faith, I shall not want. What is the Lord going to be responsible for? He's going to be responsible for two things primarily, to provide for the sheep and protect him. What David is saying is this, I've made the Lord my shepherd, therefore I will never want for protection and I will never want for provision of any kind. Now, when we think of provision, it means much more than our temporal, physical needs. It means the provision of every need, whatever that need might be. Every need of our heart and every physical need. The shepherd is always there, always directing, always planning ahead, always leading to those pastures which are best fitted for his sheep. What David is saying is, because the Lord is my shepherd, I will not want for any need, whatever that need may be, he will provide it. I will not want for any protection, for he will protect me. You may know all of these truths, but are you willing to place yourself, because of your conscious helplessness, because of your total inability to direct your steps, for the word of God says, it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Are you willing to completely and unconditionally place yourself under the complete control of the shepherd? That he might be the one who will provide for you and protect you. You may prefer not to do so. To provide for yourself in your own way and to protect yourself also, to formulate your own plans. If you insist, he may permit you to do so, because you have the choice. You can come under the shepherd, or you can come under your own will for your own life in your own way. But you will be an utter failure if you do not receive the shepherd for what he wants to be to you. And you will ultimately end possibly in disaster. There first must be the act of faith. The total commitment of ourselves to the Lord as our shepherd to provide for us and to protect us in response to our faith. The act of faith is followed by the attitude of faith. And what is that? He maketh me to lie down. When you are lying down, you are resting. The evidence of trust is rest. When you are trusting, you are resting. If you are not resting, you are not trusting, you are not exercising faith. John G. Payton was a great missionary to the South Sea Islands and he was translating the word of God into the dialect of the natives when he could not get an adequate word for faith. And then one of his helpers who had been on a long trek came into his hut totally exhausted, flung himself on a bed 
and said, it is wonderful to be able to completely relax my tired body on this bed. And Peyton had his word for faith. The native was completely relaxed on that bed. He had his word for faith. When you are believing, you are trusting, and you are resting. If you are not resting, you are not trusting. The act of faith followed by the attitude of faith, leaving everything in the shepherd's hands. Most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with the life story of the great missionary Hudson Taylor. He was so overcome by the great need in China, surrounded at all times by these multitudes who knew nothing of the way of Christ and knew nothing of the God of love who sent his son for them. And he'd gone too far, he'd overstretched, and he was completely exhausted and close to a breakdown. And he knew he'd probably have to return to England. So he made his way to the coast, got on a steamer, and was on his way to Shanghai, seated on a <clears throat> deck chair on the deck of the vessel, and he was looking out over a beautiful sunset, and then he began to think of the words of the hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. And the Spirit of God spoke to him, and he said, that's just what you are not doing. You are not resting in the Lord. And Hudson Taylor realized his error. He realized that he'd taken all the burden to himself and it remained with him instead of casting all his care upon his shepherd and letting the shepherd guide him and be his all to him in every place for every need. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. This was his problem. My friend, is it yours? As it is, as you are listening to this word this morning, are you resting in the Lord? Are you lying down? Are you conscious of his presence as your shepherd, present tense? A woman once came to Dr. McQuilkin, a very well-known and much-beloved Bible teacher here earlier this century, and she said to him, Dr. McQuilkin, Every time I come here at Ben Lippin to your conference, I'm greatly blessed and I go away in complete victory. He'd been speaking on the 23rd Psalm and she said to him, uh, Doctor, I know the Lord is my shepherd while I'm here, but when I go down to my office, there is a woman in that office and she disturbs me, she upsets me. And Dr. McCorkin said, you have the butt in the wrong place. She said, what do you mean I have the butt in the wrong place? Well, you are finishing with the woman and her problem. But if you put the butt after the problem and say, yes, this woman disturbs me, she upsets me, but the Lord is my shepherd. You finished with the shepherd and not with the woman. In other words, you are Christ conscious instead of problem conscious. It was a good word. We trust the woman understood what he was saying, and we trust also that we will all, in a fuller measure, not 
be taken up with our problems, not finish with our problems, but finish with the present tense shepherd, always there, just waiting for us to get our problem to him. And let him take care of it, and be not problem conscious, but Christ conscious. The great, greatly beloved Dan Sevener was, on one occasion, listening to a message on the 23rd Psalm, and uh, he was very sad. He'd been sad for some time because his beautiful wife, I met her, she was beautiful in every way, a very gracious Christian lady. And then Havner greatly cherished his wife. And then the Lord took her suddenly, suddenly home to be with himself. And Havner was shocked. And he sat there listening to this great word on the 23rd Psalm of the shepherd who wanted to be everything to him. But when the message was finished, he went to the preacher and said, I've concluded that I'm a goat. Because when you were preaching, I was thinking of my wife and I was saying all the time, but, 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 a goat butts, a sheep follows without any questions, without any buts, without any whys. I've come to the conclusion, I'm just a goat. Well, my friend, how many buts do you have in your life? How many buts do I have in mine? But, Lord, why? We should not have but and why in our vocabulary when we come to the Lord. Because that denies his care for us. It also denies the sovereignty of God. But why, these are words that should not be in a vocabulary. And if we are trusting and we are resting, they will not be. Because rest is the evidence of trust. He makes me to lie down. Whatever your problem is, when you bring it to him, he's going to say, lie down. Your response may be, but Lord, my family, and he just says, lie down. Well, Lord, my finances, lie down. But my physical needs, my health, he says, lie down. Just lie down. Now, why does he tell you to lie down? Because he wants to speak to you about your problem. And it is only when you are lying down that he can lead you because it is from that point he leads. He maketh me to lie down, he leadeth me. And it is then that I experience the attainment of faith. For when I am lying down, he can speak to me concerning that need, and I will have the experience of an ever-present shepherd from that point meeting every need. I want to be clear about this. First of all, there is the act of faith. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then there is the attitude of faith. He maketh me to lie down. Trust, lying down, is the evidence that I am committed all to him. He's making me lie down. Then the attainment of faith is, is that from that point, he leads me. Now he's in control. 
and I'm going to experience his presence and the meeting of my every need on a present tense basis. But the Lord is not going to speak to us or speak about anything if we are distressed, troubled, if distracted. He's going to make us lie down. I want to emphasize the lying down because this is not a day in which people know very much about rest, very much about peace. He's going to make us lie down, insist that we lie down, and wait until we are lying down and resting so that he, we can hear what he has to say to us. I remember one day flying across the English Channel, it was late one afternoon, and I looked down upon the grey waters beneath and I noticed that there was a long silver ribbon on the surface of the water. And as I followed the silver ribbon, I came to a small boat. Because the water was calm, there was an impression left on the surface. But if the water had been turbulent, there would have been no impression made by the propeller on the surface. And this is true of us. The devil is very clever at getting us distressed and upset because of circumstances and because of problems that confront us. But he has to wait until we cast all our care upon him and remind ourselves again that he's our shepherd within us. And then he's going to speak to us about the answer. Because he always has the answer to our need. He maketh me to lie down. And how does our shepherd lead his, need, lead his sheep? He leads, he leads them by still waters, pastures of greenness, still waters. And I want to suggest that the waters are too, the water of the word and the water of the spirit of God. For when the word of God, when the word of God speaks of water, it does at times speak of the word of God and at times of the spirit of God. It is when we are still before him, perhaps in the quietness of the early morning hour, with his word open before us, that he leads us, for our Lord ever leads, by his spirit, through his word. I know there can be contributing factors, but the word and the spirit are foundational. I wonder if you had such a time with him in the early morning of this day. I thank God that when I was a young Christian, I decided to ask myself four questions at the end of each day. The first question was, did you have your quiet time this morning? What did God say to you, that is through his word? What did you say to him in your prayer? And what are you believing him for today? Four questions. Did you have your quiet time? Time of learners with the Lord. What did he say to you from his word? This you must remember. And what did you say to him? This also you must remember. Because you're going to believe him that day to bring to pass that which you've asked him to do in your prayer. When we're lying down, listening to the voice of the Lord, submissive to his will, what are we going to experience? We're going to experience spiritual restoration. For the next word is, he restoreth my soul. 
he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, the Lord permits certain circumstances in our lives which we do not understand until he speaks to us about them. I believe he does not speak to us about all of them, but certainly he speaks to us about many of them when we need to understand his ways with us. He makes me to lie down. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In other words, the circumstances that he has permitted and the troublous times confronting me, he had a purpose in, in them. What was the purpose? That through my submission, through my acceptance, through my trusting him, he might be glorified. So that he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And therefore that brings peace to my own heart. He leads me in right paths. He always leads in right paths. But it's for his name's sake, not for my own personal self-satisfaction or self-realization. He always has a testing, he always has a purpose in his testings and in his trials. Permitting me to enter into a fuller fellowship with him. And when he understands, when he restores me, I have a greater understanding of his ways with me. And I learn a very vital lesson. I learn to trust his heart where I cannot trace his hand. There was a very wise old Scottish pastor who, when he would visit one of his troubled parishioners, would often take with him a well-worn single bookmark. And on one of the bookmarks, on one side of the bookmark, was a tangle of confused threads. And he would ask the inquirer to look at this back side of the bookmark. He said, what do you see? Well, I just see a mass of threads. Does it make sense to you? No, it doesn't make sense. And then he would turn the bookmark over, and on the other side were the words, God is love. So very often what is happening in our lives to the natural man does not make sense. But as Amy Carmichael well said, in acceptance lies peace. And as Rutherford, the great St. Scott, well said, yield yourself to the circumstances of his choice. He purposeth a so it may seem at times that your life is just a tangle of threads of confusion. Oh no, my friend. God is purposing a crop. Trust him. And you will glorify him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The shepherd here is not speaking of death. He's speaking of passing through death. So I pass through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, why? For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod for protection against his enemies and the staff to guide him. This is the comfort in the time of distress that the shepherd now is there to protect me. I am his responsibility. He is going to protect me. For remember David was trusting him for two things. He was trusting him to provide for him and he was trusting him to protect him. 
The instrument that the Lord used to bring me to himself was my sister. For many years she was what we call in Sydney a city mission sister, what you would call in an Anglican church an Anglican deaconess. And one of her responsibilities was to visit shut-ins. That is, elderly people who had no loved ones to care for them, and they would be living in a two-room apartment and very often ill, and she would have to make her rounds and to make certain they were comfortable and were cared for. And this often meant that she would be out at night making those rounds. The war came, Japanese submarines shelled the city of Sydney. And immediately the city was blacked out. No street lights. All the cars had hoods over their headlights. And black plastic was placed over all windows, the inside of all windows, so that no light was shining out from any house. The place completely blacked out. But my sister began to continue her rounds. And the place where she was ministering was one of the most disreputable in the city of Sydney, and it could have been called a slum. Alcoholics and most desirable people in that place. And the interesting thing was that many of them, many of them of the more undesirable types, had gone to the chief of police, and they said to him, uh, Inspector, uh, this girl, she was only in her mid-twenties, this girl must not come out in the blackout. She could be molested. And he said, that's all right. Uh, they call her the angel. They will not molest her. So he didn't say a word to my sister, but I did. And I said to her, now, Rose, yes, I know that you're not afraid of anything or anybody. I know that. But you only have to be molested once. And it could mark you for the rest of your life. And so she listened very carefully to me, and uh, then she said, uh, Isn't the Lord with me? What's the problem? Well, I was silent. Then she added a little more, Do you think he will ever leave me or forsake me when I'm doing his will? And so she continued her rounds right throughout the years when the city was blacked out. Why? Because she walked with the shepherd. She knew his presence. She had trusted him for many years and proved him. And back she went into the darkness of those hours, but with her shepherd. He prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And here we have a beautiful picture of a fugitive who's being pursued by his enemies who want to take his life. And he comes to the encampment of a very powerful chieftain, desert chieftain or sheik as we call them. And it is still the practice in many parts of the Arab lands that if a man crosses the threshold of a powerful sheik, he is then responsible to provide for him and to protect him. So he crosses the threshold and his pursuers hard after him come to that threshold but they stop because the chieftain has put his soldiers between them and the man they desire to kill. Now not only is he going to protect him but he's going to provide for him. He's going to sit at 
the table of the chief. The chief is not going to offer him anything second best. He's going to offer him that which he himself partakes of. And so there he is sitting down at the, at, at the chieftain's table and he's partaking of the, all the uh, luxurious foods that the chieftain is offering. And there are his enemies just outside glaring at him, but they cannot touch him. Beautiful picture of what our experience in the Christian life can be as we sit at table with the Good Shepherd. We can be taken up with our enemies or we can be taken up with the Shepherd. We can be concerned and upset about our enemies or we can be taken up with the Shepherd. We can be providing all of those wonderful things that he must, wants to make real to us and real in our life if only we will hand over the control of our life to him and just sit down and feast with him. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Don't be taken up with enemies. Be taken up with the one who is the present tense shepherd, presently, moment by moment, waiting to meet your need, if only you will trust him. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. So not only does he prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies, but he anoints our head with oil, and the cup runs over. Abundant life. What a beautiful picture. Seated with the king at the table, head anointed with oil, my cup running over, not only abundant provision for my own life, but an overflow for others, as I learn to sit at the Lord's table and in his presence be occupied with him, trusting him, looking unto him for the supply of every need. When we began the Bible school here, I wrote the Constitution. And in that Constitution, I followed the policy of the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor was the founder of that mission, that we would not take offerings, we would not make needs known, and we would not incur debt. Then the time came when we were convinced that the Lord would have us to uh, commence a Bible school. We, it was already a conference center, but we would add a Bible school. And at that time, when we made the decision, we had about $30,000, maybe $35,000, but when I inquired as to the cost of a dormitory, it was $185,000. So, we, with the $35,000, uh, bulldozed the area where we believe the Lord wanted to put their dormitory, and uh, we were able to lay a foundation and lay a few, few blocks and then, then our resources ran out. But just before they ran out, I was invited to go to Florida with my family uh, to visit a friend. And uh, when we arrived, he said to me, he said, I want you to come and, uh, and meet uh, the boss tonight. I've spoken to him about your ministry there and he wants to have a part with you in your ministry, but he wants to have dinner with you and the family. So we went to this this uh, restaurant, beautiful restaurant, and uh, this man came, 
Uh, he was not with his wife, uh, but he, he said to me, I will have dinner with your children, our three children, and uh, your friend can have dinner with you. So he took the children to the furthest part of the restaurant and had dinner with them. He was going to judge us by the children. So when dinner was over, we made our way back to the apartment where we were staying, and the night before we were to leave, uh, my friend said, the, the boss wants to see you because he wants to have a part uh, with you in the work up there. So I went down, and his boss handed me this this long envelope, and he said, now you have some stock in there, and I don't want you to catch it all at one time. So when I returned to Greenville, and I went to, the, to my stockbroker, and um, he opened the envelope, and he was shocked, and so was I. Because in that envelope was a check for $250,000. We had the amount we needed for that dormitory. Now, what was the great, great blessing in this? Well, the Lord says, He anointeth my, my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that when you are with the shepherd, under his guidance, you've got goodness and mercy following you. They are never out in front. Now, we would like them to be out in front where we can see them. But that's not faith. You see, Handy Moll, the great scholar, said, Faith moves and works in the dark, in the unknown, in the unseen. And so you can't see goodness and mercy behind you. But whenever you have a need, and God says he will supply all your need, goodness and mercy catch up with you, and the need is supplied. So when we were in Florida, goodness and mercy were there. They are always there. You, you cannot see them. You may turn quickly, but you won't see them, because you're walking by faith. You're walking by faith. And so what happened there in Florida, goodness and mercy caught up with us in the form of this man and his gift of a quarter of a million dollars. God is faithful. And what is the last and the most wonderful blessing of all? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There was a lady in Germany who saw a man driving a flock of sheep. They were running, they were panting, they were tired, but he kept driving them. And this lady said to a friend, this is the first time I've ever seen uh, a shepherd uh, driving sheep. And she replied, that man is not a shepherd. He is driving them to the slaughterhouse. The shepherd never drives his sheep. He leads them. Now, my dear friend, you can make a choice. You can yield yourself totally, absolutely to the control, the absolute control of the good shepherd to be all that he wants to be to you as you restfully trust him. You can make that decision. You can make it here this morning. Or you can decide not 
to make it. What is your decision now? Shall we pray? Dear Father, we thank thee that you have sent your Son to be not only our Savior, but our Shepherd. We thank thee for the simplicity of it all, the act of faith, the Lord is my Shepherd, I shall not want, and for us to believe that, and to know what it is to be made by him to lie down that he might speak to us. And then the attainment of faith, the moment by moment throughout every day, consciousness of the shepherd within, meeting our every need, to the end that you should be glorified by what we are because of what he is in us. And for this we thank thee in his precious name. Amen.